This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. David Hajaj and colleagues entitled Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Associated with COVID-19 and Emulated Target Trial Analysis. I'm joined today by the senior author of the study from the COVID-ICU investigators, Dr. Mathieu Schmidt, Professor of Critical Care at pitié Salpêtre Hospital in Paris, France. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Well, so I'd like to start by pointing out that your study was an emulated trial of severely ill patients with COVID-19 who might have benefited from ECMO. And your study suggested that high volume centers may have a bit of benefit in these patients. I imagine most of our listeners are familiar with the CESAR trial, uh, where one interpretation of that was that the mortality benefit wasn't necessarily from ECMO, but was from transferring a sick patient to a high volume center. So I'd like to start by saying, what exactly is a high-volume ECMO center, and why is it different than a low-volume center? Uh, in fact, in, in the literature, there is not a clear definition of what is a high-volume center, high-volume high ECMO center. If we look uh, in the literature, it has been demonstrated in previous publications that if you have more than 20 or 30 cases, ECMO cases per year, it will be associated with better outcome compared to other centers. But uh, in fact, in these studies, they merge VA ECMO, venous arterial ECMO, and venovenous, which is totally different and which deal with a very different patient as well. So uh, in that study that we are discussing today, we define a high volume ECMO center by having more than 30 venovenous ECMO cases in the previous year. And clearly, high-volume ECMO center uh, impact on the outcome. It has been uh, demonstrated previously before the COVID uh, pandemic. And I, I don't think it's very different from other procedures that we are doing daily in ICU. If you look at mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy, it has been demonstrated that the more you do, the better you are. And it's even the same for any surgical intervention. And I think in ECMO, the main difference between high volume and low volume ECMO centers is, uh, first of all, the training. It means that you, medical, you have medical training, but you have also nursing training, nurse training. Your nursing staff is well trained to manage these patients. And we know that there are so many nurses in one ICU. So uh, you need time to train all of them to, to, to be confident with the management of this patient. And high ECMO volume centers have more experience, so they are prepared with ECMO long run. And we know that ECMO is very long, especially in COVID-19. We will see that together. And by this way, you can avoid to conclude too early that there is no hope for a lung recovery, which is one of the main differences, in my opinion, between high volume and low volume centers. And also with high volume ECMO centers, you have local resources to cope with ECMO-related complications, meaning that around the ICU, you have surgical team to manage bleeding, you have expert radiologists for embolization and so on. So you are able to globally manage an ECMO patient. Those are really important points. I completely agree. 
getting into your study, so the approach you and your colleagues took was a bit different than an actual trial. What exactly is an emulated target trial analysis? So if we want to explain it uh, quite simply, which is not so easy, so we have to talk about causal inference. Causal inference, a keyword for causal inference, is the comparison of the distribution of the outcome after an intervention. Ideally, you do that with the RCT. But sometimes, especially in that terrible situation of the pandemic, uh, RCT could not be done because it takes time, it's very expensive. It could be even considered as unethical in that case to do not give ECMO in severe patients. Uh, or simply, it, could be, it, it was too lengthy to, for timely decision making. So clearly, it was impossible to conduct uh, RCT during this unscheduled pandemic. So in that case, you use observational study. But with, ob with observational study, you have only indirect evidence, and this observational study lacks of formally testable causal relation. One way to address this concern is to design observational analysis in such a way that the observational data emulate those from hypothetical randomized experiment. But for that, you need to have a well-defined intervention. And even if you have a well-defined intervention, you may still have difficulties to compare the two groups because the key characteristic of individuals in each group are likely to differ, which is very frequent in ICU. So the common approach is to use traditional case mate control study, for example, with propensity score or other statistical analysis with the aim to mitigate confounding and for that, you measure as many variables that you need as possible that may be responsible for the non-comparability between the two groups. And then you adjust that, them with a statistical analysis. But to, to provide valid causal inference, you need first to have to know what are the confounders, which is easy to say, but much more complex in, in, in with this uh, severe and complex patient. And also with a traditional case match control study, there is one bias that you do not take into account. It's when exposures are time varying. And in that case, the confounders may be themselves affected by prior exposure levels. And this is something that you don't capture with case match control study. And for that, this is one of the aim of this not so new design emulated target trial analysis, you specify the protocol for hypothetical randomized trial, and you, then you try to emulate this using uh, the available observational data. So the aim of our study, if we summarize it, was to estimate the effectiveness for ECMO initiation within seven days of mechanical ventilation in a large cohort of COVID-19 uh, patient hospitalized in ICU in France. Well, that's a great summary of uh, emulated target trial analysis. How, how did you select the patients for participation in the study and how did you assign them to the treatment groups? In fact, you, you proceed as an, an ARCT. You select inclusion criteria, eligibility criteria, we can call it like this. So we based our eligibility criteria on the OLIA trial. So we said that, first of all, those patients should be in ICU. Those patients should be mechanically ventilated. They should spend 
less than 14 days in ICU before ECMO's initiation or no, no initiation. They should be younger than 70 years old with a SAPS2 lower than 90. And those patients should have spent less than seven days on invasive mechanical ventilation. So these are the eligibility criteria. And then you define what is your inclusion criteria. Inclusion criteria is to define the target trial that would have been conducted if randomization was feasible. In that case, again, we based our analysis on the earlier criteria. So we select a PF, a PF ratio lower than 80 or PCO2 over 60 millimeter mercury. One important point to consider is that in the earlier trial, the duration was very important, meaning that the PF ratio should be lower than 80 for more than six hours. This concept of duration was impossible to capture in our database. So we use it, we use only a raw value, the PF ratio of the day at the time where it was collected, lower than 80 or PCO2 above 60. And we consider that all of the patients, all patients in the COVID ICU cohort were potential candidates for ECMO because mobile ECMO teams are quite well developed in, in, in France and retrieval is quite easy. And, and, and how to proceed after it is to look at every day if the patient has this inclusion criteria. So you, you check, you, you you check all patients every day if there is a PF ratio lower than 80 or PCO2 above 60. And if it's not present on the day one, you repeat it on, on day two, day three, until day seven. And day one was the first day of mechanical ventilation. And by doing that, you emulate a trial data set for each day between day one and day seven from mechanical ventilation initiation. So if we take an example, for example, at day one, among the patient ventilated at day one, some patient will be treated with ECMO at day one. So they will follow the treatment strategy and refer as a treatment group. And the remaining patient who did not initiate ECMO on day one, were following the treatment strategy, so the control group, we have the control group on that day and were referred as a control group. And it means that some patient in the control group on day one subsequently initiated ECMO. So it means that a patient could be on day one in the control group, but on day two, it could be in the ECMO group. And for this patient, they were artificially, artificially censored the day before initiating ECMO. And we repeat this process of selection for each day from day two to day seven for a live patient meeting the eligibility criteria. So it means that a given patient could be included in the control group in several trials, it means several days, but only once in the treatment group. And at the end, you get your final analysis data set, pool data set, that you obtain by pooling the data from the seven sequential trials. Speaking of duration and assignment, one criticism lobbied against Eolia was about the crossover that occurred in the non-ECMO treatment arm. And so I'm wondering how we deal with that challenge of a patient who starts off on ECMO versus day one, 
versus day seven. Do you think there's any difference between a patient who starts ECMO a little bit earlier versus a little bit later? Are they treated the same or are they accounted for differently? No, they were, they were probably different. This is something that we have analyzed in sensitive analysis between those patients who start ECMO early and those patients who start later on. And to cope with this crossover, potential crossover, those patients who get an ECMO were artificially censored the day initiating, before initiating ECMO. And uh, by this way, it was uh, a way to cope with this uh, bias. You mentioned earlier about potentially missing data not always being available. And since this isn't a prospective study, I expect there's some data that are not available. How did you deal with that? Yeah, clearly we, we got some uh, missing data, especially because this study was performed during the first wave when it was a mess everywhere uh, with lots of uh, clinical pressure. So we use uh, multiple imputation using chain equations to replace uh, missing values uh, on covariates. One important point is that there was no missing data regarding ECMO exposures. This is important. And also that about the PF ratio, because PF ratio was very important to determine if the patient was eligible. No patient had missing PF ratio for all seven days. To be sure that this multiple imputation did not uh, impact too much on our results, we did a sensitive analysis and we find comparable results to the primary analysis when we use complete cases uh, analysis without multiple imputation. Let's move on to some of the, um, how we get to the patients here. So from my read, you started off by studying about 4,200 patients and about 2,900 were included in the emulation trial. And I see that 269 patients or about 9% had received ECMO. And, and it looks like those people were pretty sick. Most of them were prone, received neuromuscular blockade uh, before receiving ECMO and about 44% of them died. And it looks like you compared them to about 1,400 patients who were in the mechanical ventilation arm. But the final cohort in the trial emulation ended up being much smaller for both the ECMO and non-ECMO arms. Can you walk us through how you got down to that final cohort? Yes, you're, you're right. We start with uh, 4,244 patients, including the analysis. So this is a COVID ICU cohort. We got 2,858, meaning 67% patients who met the criteria for inclusion in the target trial, meaning that they were younger than 70 years old with a SAPS tool lower than 90 and so on. We got 269 uh, patients who received ECMO within 14 days of ICU admission, so 9%. And among these 269 patients, the mortality was 44%. Uh, As you said, these patients were very sick. The median uh, PF ratio was 62. PCO2 was 58 in median before ECMO start. More than 81% uh, of this patient has a PF ratio lower than 80. And nearly all of them received prone positioning and continuous neuromuscular blockade before ECMO. It was 89% prone positioning and, and nearly 100% of them received continuous neuromuscular blockade. What we have to consider is what I, I said before, is that in this kind of trial, one patient can contribute several times to the did not initiate ECMO group, but only once in the initiated ECMO group. 
So if we just look at the unique patient at the end, based on all eligibility criteria, the time spent on, on mechanical ventilation lower than seven days, the PF ratio lower than 80, and so on, we got 164 ECMO patients compared to 1,071 non-ECMO patients, if we talk about unique patients. Well, that's great. So what did you find with your uh, targeted emulated trial? Was ECMO beneficial? And if so, in whom? Uh, it's, it's a little bit complex. First of all, the overall survival of these 269 ECMO patients was 56%. So it was a number which was in, uh, in adequation with the previous uh, literature in the field. But if we compare those patients included in this uh, immunity trial, so meaning those patients who fulfill eligibility criteria, the estimated survival after 90 days for patient initiating ECMO was 63%, and it was 65% without ECMO initiation. So it means that the ECMO patient didn't have a better outcome compared to the non-ECMO patient. And what was a little bit surprising for us is that we show that the benefit of ECMO varied over time. So it means it was protective until day 28. And after day 28, the prognosis was even poorer, even if it was not significant, for ECMO patients compared to non-ECMO group. What is interesting is the sensitive analysis that we performed because we did sensitive analysis in several subgroups. And we show that day 90 survival was 78% for ECMO patients treated in high volume center compared to 64% in those not receiving ECMO and, and those patients compared to not receiving ECMO. And it was a very large risk difference, 14%. So we did also other sensitive analysis. And at the end, we can conclude from this work that an ECMO strategy consistently yield to better outcomes when it was performing high volume ECMO centers, when it was performing in a region where ECMO services had been organized specifically uh, during this pandemic to handle high demand, it was the case of Paris and greater area. We have centralized the ECMO indication. We have developed specific model during this terrible uh, two months. And we, show, we, we showed also in this uh, work that if you initiate ECMO early after intubation, it's associated with a better outcome. And also, it's, it seems to be benefit for uh, those patients who are profoundly hypoxemic, which was defined by a PF ratio lower than 65. So clearly, uh, this work uh, reinforced the need for regional ECMO networks. This work advocate for providing ECMO in experience centers to optimize the outcome of this critically uh, ill patient. Yeah, no, I, I think that's amazing, the uh, mortality difference or survival difference in the high volume centers versus the low volume centers. One, one of the challenges with emulating a trial is that of confounding my indication. And I also hear that issue raised a lot when reviewing re retrospective ECMO literature. And uh, just to clarify what that means for uh, the listeners, you know, confounding my indication is when people receive a treatment tend to be different than those who don't. And so people who might receive ECMO are going to be different than those who don't receive ECMO. When I look at your study, I noticed that some of the patients who received ECMO tended to be younger. They had higher acute physiology scores. They had less diabetes, less hypertension. 
So how do you deal with issues like confounding and censoring? Yes, you are right. To estimate the effect of ECMO use on survival, you, you need to account for confounding in this association. And another thing that we had to do in that study is that we also needed to account for the dependent censoring that is created from our artificial censoring of patients in the control group at the start of a given trial. And this patient would deviate it from the treatment strategy when ECMO was initiated. So to do that, we adjust for confounders, uh, measure at each trial start, so meaning each day during the first seven days. And we use uh, time-dependent inverse probability of censoring weights. So we, we adjust on specify a covariate that uh, were currently used to adjust for confounding during COVID-19, but also during ECMO, so based on the literature in the field. So we adjust on many covariates uh, like age, sex, inclusion period, the BMI, the delay, the, the time between first symptom to ICU admission, the time between ICU admission and and mechanical ventilation initiation, diabetes, hypertension, immunodeficiency, the PF ratio, the PCO2 as well, bacterial co-infection, extra pulmonary dysfunction, like cardiovascular component of the SOFA score, prone positioning before using ECMO, neuromuscular blockades, use of corticosteroids before ECMO initiation or before, before non-ECMO initiation. So we adjust based on this pre-specified covariates every day for each trial. And we include also in the model the ECMO status at the start of the trial. We, we include it as a covariate plus all the covariates that I have listed. But as you said, this is not an RCT, so it will not be perfect as an RCT. So despite controlling carefully all the potential covariates, Residual confounding may, may still be present. You did a thorough job, although, uh, you, as you mentioned, there's no way to completely eliminate it. I, I do think that it's a really impressive uh, effort. I, I wanted to point out that your study seems very similar in design to a smaller one that was published last year in intensive care medicine by Sheffield colleagues. But in that study, they found a lower risk of death with uh, ECMO. How do you explain the difference between your study and theirs? Yeah, this is true. Shafi et al. were the first one to use this, uh, this design in COVID-19, and especially in the ECMO field. They show a considerably lower risk of death in patients treated with ECMO compared to those who didn't receive ECMO. I think our population is a little bit different. We use broader eligibility criteria in our trial because we include patients up to 15 days in ICU. And Sheffy and colleagues uh, include patients during the first seven days in ICU. If we compare our two populations, all populations have a lower pre-ECMO PF ratio, lower static compliance as well, maybe suggesting that all patients were a little bit more severe with greater respiratory severity. And another point, which also illustrates the potential higher severity in our population, is that we had a higher use of pre-ECMO-prone positioning in our study. It was 97% in our study. If I remember well, it was 71% in the study of Sheffy and colleagues. So it means that our population was refractory to almost all pre-ECMO classical adjunct therapies. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point about the receipt of some of those um, salvage therapies. Uh, you know, I wanted to point out that there's still equipoise on ECMO for severe ARDS, despite all of these uh, studies that have been done. And the prospective studies of uh, the extremely ill, like Eolia or uh, Cesar, are extremely challenging and expensive. And patient selection sometimes involves criteria that are hard to standardize, as, as you pointed out, with some of the differences between your study and, and others. I also think it's hard to maintain scientific integrity when a clinician doesn't want to withhold a treatment they believe to be life-saving, like ECMO. So with all of those comments, what do you think is needed to design a study that might settle this question of ECMO and severe ARDS? First of all, I don't think there is still equipoise for ECMO in severe ARDS. I think the earlier trial has demonstrated that there are some benefits uh, in this context with ECMO, despite not being traditionally positive, despite not reaching this magic p-value. But this, this p-value is mainly explained by the design of the study with many crossover. And also, if we go back to the earlier trial, uh, most of the other secondary outcomes favor ECMO as well. So uh, the earlier trial has helped to better define the selection criteria, but there are still many questions, as you have said. And the question now is, by how much does it more work in women at what cost? And regarding your question about withholding it more, I think it's a very difficult, relevant question to, but it's very difficult to address because it depends on so many factors the center, your background, culture, disease, extra, do we have extra pulmonary dysfunction, the patient severity, and ethical study on ECMO have shown large viability uh, in terms of decision of withholding ECMO. But in fact, uh, I'm not sure that it's really different that, than other procedure in intensive care medicine, uh, like mechanical ventilation. But for, for sure, this is complex question. It's maybe a little bit more complex in ECMO population because we are managing, we are caring for young patients with lost, lots of human financial investment. So um, it might be a little bit more complex, but our, our role in, in the future is to, to make it more simple, like it has been done with other procedures in intensive care medicine. No, I think that's very well said. Well, this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Schmidt, for a great discussion on his study in ECMO and severe ARDS and about emulated target trials. I think that your study really underscores the importance of high-volume centers. And also, as data becomes more accessible and detailed, I think we're going to see more of these types of emulated target trial studies to answer clinically relevant questions like this one. Uh, congratulations on your study, and, and thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Schmidt. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Michael Lansma for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. <laughs>